So uh, one of the most miraculous things about the Christian faith, and I'll start with that, is this reality that God has had one plan. God has one decree, which presents to us one story throughout history. And what makes this miraculous is that as we read about this story, uh, it is compiled from multiple human authors in different time periods with different experiences, and yet there is a cohesiveness when you put it all together. Uh, In it, we find common motifs, uh, common themes, which help us to develop a, a theology that reveals to us what God's ultimate goal is from the beginning of creation through the end of time. It's one grand story. Now, from the beginning, God's goal for all of creation was that his image and his glory fill up the whole world. And man was to be about this mission and was to glorify God himself. And yet we see throughout scripture times of of seeming success and times of horrific failure. And if you were to grab your Bible like this, you were to flip somewhere in the Old Testament, you might read the words that say, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in all the earth and that every intention of his thoughts and of his heart was only evil continuously. You see that in Genesis 6, 5. And by this, it would seem as if God's plan failed, right? And then if you were to close your Bible again and open it again, somewhere in the New Testament, you might read the words or words that are completely different. Um, You might read something like this. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under, under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so after reading that, you might conclude that the plan maybe didn't fail and things turned out okay. And again, this is a grand story that we're privileged to be a part of. Um, right now, as I speak, we're living in that story and we're participating in the drama where in the end... God gets exactly what he created mankind and all creation to fulfill, which is that God gets full glory. That's the point of all, all of life, all, all of creation. So I want to tell you kind of where we are in the timeline of God's story. The previous classes uh, walk you through the timeline from the beginning all the way through the New Testament. And today we arrive at the time in which we call the last days. And I want us to see what God is doing in history, uh, especially in these so-called last days, to accomplish his ultimate purpose of glory. So where are we in God's plan? Uh, Why are there churches everywhere? Uh, How is God accomplishing his ultimate purpose for creation? And what does preaching and gospel proclamation have to do with that mission? Uh, And I, I hope to answer that throughout this lesson, okay? Uh, This lesson is entitled, The Proclaimed Kingdom, and I've divided it into three points, and you'll see it in your handout there. Uh, The first one is the present age and the age to come. The second point is creation mandate and the Great Commission. And the third point is Christ's present rule through through proclamation. Christ's present rule through proclamation. So let's begin with the first point by talking about where we currently are in the timeline of God's big story. The first point, the present age and the age to come. So in God's storyline, 
we are in a time in which the scriptures call the last days. Now, for some of you, the phrase the last days would probably bring to mind all kinds of future apocalyptic, apocalyptic imagery. Uh, maybe what comes to your mind is war. Uh, maybe what comes to your mind is famine, uh, the Antichrist. Maybe what comes to mind when you think of the last days is that mysterious mark of the beast. Often, people relate the phrase the last days to mean the final countdown to the end of the world. But when we look in scripture, uh, it seems to give us something a bit different and not, not to say that it's absent from some of these elements, but as we read scripture, it might give us a better holistic perspective of the last days. I'll start with this passage here, uh, 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. It says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self. Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. I want you to notice something there. That in the beginning of this passage, it talks about the last days. And that when the last days come, you'll see this. And you'll see that, you see that list of different uh, characteristics about the last days. And then there's this exhortation or this sort of command at the end of this passage where it says, avoid such people. And that helps us to put into perspective when and when is this uh, time period so-called the last days? Um, and here it seems that it's not speaking about the long future somewhere years ahead. Um, it's actually telling them to avoid such people. And, it, it, and it's speaking about the, the, the present time of the author there. <clears throat> Another passage to consider is James 5.3. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. So there's that phrase, you have laid up treasure in the last days. And it, again, it's speaking about something that you have done already, or you know, specifically speaking about the context there with the author. So again, notice how in these verses, the last days are understood to be the actual present time of the human authors of, of those verses in uh, 2 Timothy and James. In other words, they were already living in the last days there. <clears throat> so why is it called the last days if in fact it's been the last days for over 2,000 years already? Does that mean that we are in the really, really, really last days? <laughs> not, not quite. <laughs> Uh, we need to adjust our thinking a little bit, allow this to sort of give us a good framework. And the framework that I think scripture gives us is, I think, essential to understanding this concept of the last days properly. First of all, we see in the Gospels that Jesus uses a framework that divides the now and the future in two ages. Okay, So we'll talk about that and we'll look at that division of how Jesus talks about the now and then the age to come. That way, if we have that framework, then we can see, okay, where are we in that framework and where, where, what are the last days there? Okay, so um, 
Uh, let's look at a passage here. It says Matthew, in Matthew 12, 32, And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. When? Either in this age or in the age to come. So you see that Christ has already made a timeline for us, uh, a way to understand two different ages. Right under that, can someone read this one? Mark 10, 29 through 30. Thanks, y'all. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Thank you. Yeah, so you see... uh, now in, in this time, there's sort of a present time or a present age, houses, brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. So a good idea of what the age to come is that last, uh, those last two words, uh, eternal life. And there's a, there's a separation or a distinction between things that are happening or things that we're receiving, things that are a reality of the present age and a reality about the age to come, which is, which is that age of eternal life. <clears throat> and then we have Luke 20, 34 through 36. Can someone read that one as well? And Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God sons of the resurrection. Thank you, brother. So again, you see, uh, to that age and to the resurrection, sort of a separation from uh, this age, which you see in this age we give into marriage, things like that, things that we won't be given into in the future age. So hearing from Jesus himself, I think it's safe to say that there is a division between a current age and one that is to come, and I think all of us are on that same page. Um, this is nothing really new. Uh, we see one, one age that's temporal and one that's eternal, uh, one in which the gospel of Mark uh, says we receive temporal blessings and one that we receive eternal ones. Um, and as the gospel of Luke tells us, there is an age where we are given to marriage and another after the resurrection in which we marry no more. And this is a helpful framework. Uh, and in this framework of a present age and an age to come is is going to help us to see where we are and where the last days are. So the big question is, where, where are we in this timeline? Are we in the present age? Or are we already into the age to come? I hope that's obvious. That we are not yet in the age to come. We are still uh, giving into marriage and other things that are still part of a, a present temporal age. But where are we in the present age? Are we in the beginning of the present age? In the middle or the end? Uh, Well, judging by the passages we read, both the apostles and us are in the last days of the present age. So the last days of the present age. And this is what the phrase last days is referring to. But even more than that, I think this this is more important. We are in the part of the last days where certain aspects of the age to come are already breaking through into this age. Okay, we knew, remember, the age to come is a future eternal age. 
that age is in a lot of ways breaking through this temporal age. Uh, the future age to come is in many ways overlapping the present. And if you don't believe me, I'll prove it to you. But before we do that, <laughs> before we do that, uh, let's look at this diagram just to, to give you a good idea where we are. So these are two circles. I know the lighting is not the best here, but these are two circles. The circle on the left is the present age now. The circle on the right is the age to come, the not yet age. The last days is right in between the first coming of Christ when he came as a baby and the second coming when Jesus comes back to return. This is post-ascension, after crucifixion, ascension. Uh, he, he's coming back, that second coming. We are in between that, and that's pretty obvious. Um, and again, uh, this overlap period right in the middle is what we call the last days, which is uh, essentially the last days of this present age. And in these last days, many blessings of the age to come are actually experienced in this present age. Heavenly things. Uh, one example of this is that history has already received the first fruits of the new kingdom. Okay? The first fruit before anything is Jesus Christ himself. Right? We see in scripture that the heavenly one condescended to earth. He lived and then was crucified for our sins. And now uh, we, he, you see that breakthrough into the world, into this present age. Um, and, and we, in a lot of ways, receive benefits from that action. Now, what about that situation tells us about the breakthrough from the age, from that age to this age? Um, as you know, Jesus did not stay in the grave, but was the first to experience the eternal resurrection and glorification. And so Jesus himself, after dying, uh, crucified, dying, resurrecting from the dead, and then ascending into his, his heavenly throne, that there, um, we have experienced a breakthrough from the age to come into this, into this present age. Um, to be more specific, we see instances where um, the scriptures describe Jesus as being in that glorified state, right? That new body uh, that we long for, Jesus, came back from, from the dead in the resurrection um, and came back in newness, right? And he is the firstborn among many brethren. So what he's experiencing in the resurrection and that glorification is what one day we will receive, one, one, that one day we will experience. And so he has already experienced that, right? These benefits from the new age, or the age to come, rather, and uh, he experienced that here in the present age. Um, uh, a better way to say that, I think, is reading what Scripture says. In Colossians 1.18, he says, He is also head of the body, the church. This is talking about Jesus. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. And again, first place is referring to uh, that this new kingdom that is to come, uh, and in a lot of ways is breaking through. He is the firstborn of that. He is the firstborn of the dead. He is the first to resurrect. He himself will come to have first place in everything. This is, uh, this is what we mean when we say a breakthrough. Romans 8.29 For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. 
So Jesus is sort of the forerunner of what we one day will experience. And so he experienced that even while the present age was still present. So again, here we see that Jesus, after being crucified and died, was the first to receive the resurrection and glorification that we too will one day receive. This happened to Jesus historically in the present age. And that act in history is the basis for many other things of the future kingdom of God that that are breaking through into this age. There are a number of explicit statements in the New Testament as well as the overall theology of the New Testament, which brings us to the conclusion that many of the blessings of the age to come are no longer exclusively in the future, but have become objects of present experience in this age. For example, Hebrews 6. Uh, I'm looking at Hebrews 6, 4 through 5. Uh, it speaks of those who tasted the powers of the age to come. Okay? It says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God, and the powers of the age to come. This is, this is scriptural evidence saying that the age to come is already breaking through, and Christians, those who have the Spirit, have already tasted and experienced, obviously to a limit, uh, blessings and, and elements of the age to come breaking through into this age. Still, though, the age to come is still future, Right? We're still in the present age, but it's still future, but we may taste the powers of that age, according to this passage. The powers of that age have penetrated this age. Now, we're not going to taste the fullness of it now. We still groan and long to taste it in full one day. But nevertheless, the taste is real. And in Galatians 1.4, we also read that Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. So how can men and women who live in the present evil age be delivered from its power? This deliverance comes from the power of the age to come, which has reached back and projected itself in the person of Jesus Christ into the present evil age so that we, by the power of of the age to come, may be delivered from the present evil age. Our salvation and the power of the the future uh, age to come has reached back into our present age and, and has, has uh, delivered us from this present evil age. And, and we, we see that in Galatians 1.4. And so with all that said, we understand the last days are the period in the intersection of the two ages, the time between the first and the second coming of Christ. The last days began when Christ came and through the time when, Jesus, when the New Testament letters were written in the time which we still live in today. In other words, we've been in the last days for quite some time. What marks the end of the last days? When, when does being in the last days finish? The return of Christ and the resurrection of the dead. This will mark the end of this age and will be immediately followed by the age to come. And we see this kind of language in Matthew 24, verse 3. Uh, Can someone read that?
Thank you. And we see from this verse that there is a direct correlation, even with the disciples, with the return of Christ, and with the termination of this age and the beginning of a new one. There's a relationship there. Now, considering everything we spoke of regarding the ages, what did it mean to the disciples that they were living in the last days, that they were living in the already and the not yet overlap? What does it mean for us to be living in the already and not yet overlap? If you've been following along with the storyline of the Bible, you would know uh, that from the beginning, God had a plan. As I mentioned earlier, he started with Adam in the garden and ended with Jesus Christ coming into the world as a newer and better Adam. You'd know that Adam's commission from the beginning was to spread God's glory throughout creation as his image bearer, and he failed, right? Genesis 3, they, they failed, he failed. But what about Christ, the new Adam? Did Christ fail in that mission? You don't have to answer it. The answer is no, he didn't fail. Um, it may have seemed that way when he was crucified, or even when he ascended to heaven after his resurrection, leaving behind the disciples. But how is Christ going to accomplish, accomplish that commission of the spreading of God's glory as the greater Adam, especially if he left and ascended into heaven? That brings us to our next point. That second point there on your handout is the creation mandate and the great commission. Creation mandate and the great commission. Can someone tell me really fast what the creation mandate is? What am I talking about when I say the creation mandate? What was the mission for man in the beginning of the garden? Somewhat. That's okay. Yeah, subdue. Yes, thank you, Ron. And can someone tell me the Great Commission? What is the Great Commission that we read about in the New Testament? Yeah, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to do all that I've commanded. Okay, so keep that in mind. Uh, again, in this point, in this uh, point number two, I, I want to make a connection that is very important in order to see the point of redemptive history as a whole. When God created the world, he did so with an ultimate plan and goal. And we see throughout the scriptures that this plan was always the same because God was and is always the same. 2 Timothy 1.9 Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Oftentimes we think of Jesus as plan B. Right? Uh, because the fall happened, oh no, the fall happened, we need a rescue plan now. And so Jesus Christ becomes plan B to sort of rescue man and bring him back to his original state. And that's not true. Jesus Christ was the plan before the ages began. It's, mis it's mysterious, but accept it. <laughs> Let it sit in now. It's God's word, right? Acts 3, 19 through 21. It says, repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refresh refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ, uh, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. And kind of moving into, uh, in further in, in redemptive history, uh, even after man came and Jesus, uh, Jesus the man did not exist, right? He wasn't born yet in history. 
he was still spoken about through uh, the prophets long ago. But again, these verses and many more speak on the single plan that God has had since the beginning. God had no plan B. Uh, It's important to understand because God did not start with plan A and then decide to move to plan B as if plan A failed. And this should inform how we understand the commission that we read about in Matthew 28 and also how it connects to the mission that was given to man in Genesis in the beginning of creation. The mission of the church today is very much in connection with the mission God gave to man in the garden when he first created him. Let's explore that a little bit. Uh, the commission given to man found in Genesis 1, 26 through 28 um, can be summarized in this way. And, and what I did here was pull certain elements from that passage. If you were to turn there, you don't have to read it, but just turn there, you would see that these are important elements that make the commission, that, that mission, what it is, right? We see that God blessed them. We see this command to be fruitful and to multiply. We see this mission to fill the earth. We see that they were to subdue the earth. And number five, to rule over all the earth. One of the key uh, factors uh, that really informs the whole mission is this point here I put in the bottom, that man was made in the image and likeness of God. And the fact that man was made in the image and likeness of God informs why this mission is important. It would be vain for man to fill the earth and subdue it for his own glory, right? However, it is the image of God that informs this mission's purpose. And as man was to be fruitful and to multiply and rule, it would be the image of God that eventually fills the earth. This was the goal and still is today. This isn't a goal from back in the day. This is the goal still today that God's glory fill the, fill the world and that, it would, uh, and that his image would subdue and rule over all creatures. Now, let me say this real quick, but let me... Many people often say that eschatology or the study of last things isn't really an important doctrine. It can fall down to maybe number six or seven on the list of important doctrines. However, if you're a serious student of the word, you would see that before we even ever had a doctrine of salvation, we had a doctrine of eschatology. Before we even had a doctrine of salvation, we had a doctrine of eschatology. Before the revealing of salvation, there was already a doctrine of the last things. And it is summarized, I think, in Genesis 1, 26 to 28, which is this mission, the purpose, the reason why God did all things, why the story of God even exists. And of course, uh, it's that all of creation would magnify the glory of God, would reflect the glory of God, and that God would get glory um, uh, throughout all creation. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, didn't you read what happens in Genesis 3, the fall? Didn't you read that the mission failed and mankind fell in sin? Yes, of course. But was God's mission aborted? Not at all. We see as the story unfolds that although the mission is passed on to Adam's descendants and then to other Adam-like figures, we see that each one fails. Not even a whole chosen nation was able to subdue. But, comment? So, I'm trying to understand your thought. Sure. Are you comparing the creation mandate and great commission as parallel endeavors? 
Yes. Yeah, I would argue that it is it is the same mission all the way through. It is the same mission. Um, that's sort of the punchline of my presentation today. Um, <laughs> sort of the punch, the thing that makes you go, wow, oh. <laughs> but then I realize that it's not really, oh, wow, to people. But, um, but uh, yeah, it is the punchline. Uh, and it really, it, and I'm convinced by it. I think that scripture teaches that God's been, uh, that the original, the original mission was not busy work, right? God didn't create people and said, oh, I'm going to keep you guys busy, subdue, and then this is a, a test uh, to see, you know, how you can be faithful in being busy. Um, the ultimate goal was always the glory of God, um, to the praise of the glory of God. And you see that connection with the Great Commission, that God has not abandoned his mission um, from the beginning. Um, yeah, you know. Let's see. Like, like going from the physical to the spiritual? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and I think, I think uh, it's always been God's mission. He's never... Uh, the, the, that spiritual aspect has always been um, at the heart of God's mission uh, since the beginning. Um, yeah, so... But hopefully as I, as I develop this, you'll see, Will, this whole time I doubted you, but you were right. <laughs> <laughs> Good question, though. So we see as the story unfolds that although the mission is passed on to Adam's ascendants and other Adam-like figures, um, each one fails. Not even a whole chosen nation was able to subdue. But the prophets throughout history spoke of one who would come that would accomplish that mission. And his name is... Thank you, that one person. Thank you. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Although Adam fell, Jesus did not fall. Where Adam and all his posterity fell, Jesus did not. Where they did not overcome, Jesus overcame. When Israel fell into idolatry, when tempted in the wilderness, Jesus did not fall into sin and idolatry in his time in the wilderness. Jesus was the greater Adam and the greater Israel. He is the victor. Now, since Adam's failure in the commission was due to sin and its consequences were death, Jesus gains victory even over that. Jesus gains victory over sin. Jesus gains victory over death, which were the primary obstacles for this mission, right? The reason why we couldn't get to accomplishing this mission was that. Sin, death, Satan, and Jesus defeats it all on the cross. When the world saw and witnessed it and, and said, oh, he failed on the mission, he's dead. And this, is, this was the, the, the most glorious moment on the cross in his death and in his resurrection and ascension where, where he, he gained victory over it all. In Christ, you can break away from your ties with Adam. You. You can be part of the winning team. And, and your union with Adam is your participation in the failing of the mission. But in Christ, you can be a, a participant of the succeeding of the mission. The question is, what team are you on? A mission that Jesus himself is accomplishing. Uh, the question then is, how is Jesus accomplishing this mission? How is Jesus spreading the blessed image of God throughout the world and throughout creation? How is Jesus himself being fruitful and multiplying? How is Jesus filling the earth with the glory of God? He doesn't have any kids. 
He's not having kids. How is he being fruitful and multiplying? How is he subduing the earth to the glory of God? How is he ruling over the earth to the glory of God? How is he doing that? Well, I'll start by saying that he absolutely is doing that. And he is doing this marvelously and powerfully at this very moment as we speak. And we see Jesus reintroducing this commission in Matthew 28, famous passage. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now this this passage alone is packed with so much treasure. Not only has Christ conquered death, but he returns to give his disciples the commission to spread the glory of God throughout the world by charging them to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Trinity and promising that he will be with them forever. But what is even more glorious than this is the words right before that, where he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore. All right, he didn't just send them off and say, you know, try your best. He says, all authority has been given to me, in heaven and on earth has been given to me, so go therefore, right? In other words, Christ is fulfilling this global mission even now through the instituted church, and he will be successful because all authority in heaven and on earth has in fact been given to him, all right? It is on that basis that Christ then, can, then says, go therefore, right? If, if all authority in heaven and on earth was not given to him, then we, we may go in the world in his name, but we go with a ruler with no authority. And what I'm, I'm not saying that we go and we preach authoritatively. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that we can trust in the success of the gospel. We can trust in the means that were instituted to the church uh, that they will in fact be effectual in this mission and that God will uh, fulfill that great commission that was started in the beginning in the garden. He will do that and not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. And uh, like I said, he's doing that uh, he's, 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 um, he's accomplishing this mission, uh, and you see whom he gave this mission to. He didn't give it to one individual Christian. He didn't give it to a few Christians that were there present. He didn't say, you, you, and you go on individually and fulfill the Great Commission. He gave it to them collectively, right? He also told them about baptism, which is something that is, is, uh, is, something that is performed in the collective church, right? It's not uh, given to individual people. You know, you go and you feel like baptizing somebody and you go and you baptize somebody. This, is some, this mission was given to the church as an institution. It was a mission that was given to the collective of, of, of Christian people who were um, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And so, again, Christ is fulfilling this global mission through the instituted church as he will be successful because all authority in heaven and on earth has been in fact given to him, uh, has been given to him. 
It is on that basis that Christ then says, go therefore. The mission of God initially given to Adam in the garden is now being accomplished by Christ and through the means of the instituted church. <clears throat> this brings us to the last point in the, uh, in the handout. The, the proclamation of the kingdom. I think I worded it differently on the handout. How does this, what does it say there? Yeah, Christ's present rule through proclamation. <clears throat> now, a quick reminder. Uh, the title of this lesson is The Proclaimed Kingdom. And w- what does it mean that the kingdom of God is a proclaimed one? And how does that relate to the last days? And how does that even relate to this theme of accomplishing God's mission? Well, as I discussed in the last point, the mission of God is being accomplished by Christ ruling from the right hand of the Father through the means of the instituted church. But what does, that look, what does that look like practically? In what way is the instituted church spreading the rule of Christ? I'd say this is best summarized in this passage here, Luke 24, verses 46 through 49. Can someone read that? Thank you, brother. So Jesus tells his disciples um, that right before he ascends to heaven. And again, there's a correlation between the Great Commission uh, in in Matthew 28 uh, to make disciples of all nations, uh, the ordinance of baptism, and also what Jesus commands here, which I kind of underlined it, um, which is the proclamation of repentance and forgiveness of sins. And so... Again, the question is, uh, in what way is the instituted church spreading the rule of Christ? Through proclamation, right? Gospel proclamation is the normative means in which this commission is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is a kingdom proclaimed. Souls are being transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son by means of gospel proclamation. Many in our day have tried to say that mere gospel proclamation is truncated and is not sufficient and is barely the work we ought to do. But this is to deny the power of proclamation and deny the power of the proclamation of the gospel specifically and its ability to free souls from darkness and sin and to make them sons of God. To depart from gospel proclamation as the primary task of the church is to depart from the church's unique task and mission which our Lord has not given to any other institution to do. So if we start doing a bunch of programs here, and we start doing a bunch of other things, we start feeding the poor, we start um, using all, of our me- all our means to do things and, and lose sight of the primary task of the church, we stop being a church, right? We become something else. Gospel proclamation is the primary task of the church, and it's uniquely the church's task. If we stop doing it, literally no one else will do it. No one else will do it. The church, the people of God, collectively, together, as members of a body, we are called to proclaim the gospel. 
you, you don't have a true church if you do not have gospel proclamation as a primary task. I want to show you in scripture just the emphasis of proclamation. Just how much it's emphasized. <clears throat> and if we depart from that, we basically are denying scripture's emphasis on the proclamation of the word. <clears throat> Mark sixteen fifteen, and he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. That's the job. Acts ten forty two, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and of the dead. <clears throat> Matthew ten seven, and proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 2. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. It's that proclamation, that preaching. Matthew 24, 14. And the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed through the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. See that? That's the job of the church, proclamation of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 9.16 For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. So proclamation is, is the emphasis in many passages in scripture. Uh, and this is how Christ rules and reigns and fulfills the creation mandate. Right? His word is proclaimed and people enter his kingdom. Being fruitful and multiply, Jesus it's not having, is, is not having physical children in the way that we, we would through natural uh, generation. But many are being born again, right? Many are being born again. Uh, the seeds of Christ, if you will, by faith, are, are filling the world. He's multiplying in children in that sense, in that spiritual sense, right? The, 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 the creation mandate is being fulfilled there. Right? His word is proclaimed and people are entering his kingdom. Sins are forgiven. Souls are being transferred from the kingdom of darkness to, the king, to God's kingdom. And Christ-like people are multiplying, filling the earth, and Christ subdues it as the greater and better Adam. And at his second coming, the final consummation of the new heavens and earth will be brought forth. Death and Satan will no longer hinder this commission. But, but again, it takes Christ to come back in that second coming to make that final to make that ultimate. And again, this is what all creation long for, uh, longs for. Uh, yet in this age, those of us who are in Christ have already received, in a sense, uh, a down payment of this future age to come. We can taste it now. Uh, and I think that's what stirs up that longing, right? We've tasted the blessing of salvation. Our desires have been changed. We now have an, uh, we're now heavenly minded, if you will. Um, and, and because of that, we've tasted the goodness of the age to come. And we long for it. <clears throat> uh, just to conclude, uh, we've seen that we're currently in the last days in which we've already experienced blessings and benefits from the age to come. Uh, we long for the, f the fullness of it. We've also seen the connection between the creation mandate and the Great Commission and how God's mission has not failed, uh, but is actually being fulfilled in, in Christ. And finally, we've seen how God's kingdom is a proclaimed kingdom in which its primary task and its method of expansion is the proclamation of the gospel. Now, there is an element 
that is key to the success of God's mission and the extending of God's kingdom that I didn't mention in today's lesson. A very important element that apart from this, it would not work. Are you interested in finding out what that key element is? Find out next week in part two of the uh, proclaimed kingdom. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you uh, have blessed us with your truth. Thank you for making us partakers of this glorious story. We ask that you would humble us as we ponder on your works throughout history. You are all powerful and all wise in what you've been doing throughout history and, and how your providence has worked all things so perfectly to fit your glorious plan. This should cause us to fear you. Uh, this should cause us to walk and seek after holiness. This should cause us to worship you all of our days. Father, may we play our parts faithfully in this glorious story. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, y'all.